Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. <clears throat> if you are a visitor or a regular or a member, member, if you are here in Auditorium 1 or over there in Auditorium 2, how you guys doing, or watching online, no matter how you're tuning in or joining in, we thank you so much. We believe that God is really, really faithful and that he is doing wonderful things here in and through his people at Fellowship Greenville. So however you are, thank you for being a part of it. <clears throat> Several presidents ago when I was on student ministry staff here at the church, actually uh, almost 14 years ago to the week from right now, I sat in this room about 40 feet from where I'm sitting right now, somewhere in between the free throw line and the three-point line. I think maybe right where Jose is sitting, perhaps right over there. And I listened to a sermon from this stage on the passage that I get to preach on Today, also at that time 14 years ago, I was in a seminary preaching class getting ready for a sermon on the same passage. And as the sermon was being preached about 14 years ago, almost to the day, I thought to myself with as much humility as I could muster up in my 20s, which is zero, I thought, I thought, I could do that. I, I should be doing that. My message that I'm working on is at least that good. Well, I am happy to tell you that I did not get what I wanted and all God's people said amen because my message that I prepped for my seminary preaching class was the hottest piece of sermonic garbage ever to be heard. And I'll go ahead and tell you, having to watch your own sermons in your 20s on VHS and then grade yourself is like taking a bath in shame. Zero fun points. Absolutely no fun at all. And uh, truthfully, it, it is one of the many things that makes me grateful for our church and specifically grateful for my friend Charlie Boyd and how much I've learned uh, from him about preaching and scripture and ministry. So today uh, might not be the best sermon you've ever heard, but I swear on a stack of KJVs that it will be better than what was floating through my head 14 years ago. So take out your Bibles and open to John chapter 15. Pretty please, thank you. Take your time. Hurry up. John chapter 15. <clears throat> the entire point of John's gospel when he tells the Jesus story is that we would believe, we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the hero, that he's the king. And by believing, we would have life in his name, life the way God intended. That's what John says in John chapter 20. And this purpose statement for the whole gospel is for people who are far from Jesus, who don't know Jesus, so that they would come to know Jesus, that they would believe. And this purpose statement is also for those who are already following Jesus, that they would grow in their dependence on him. So everything John does in telling us the Jesus story is to stir up belief that Jesus is who he said. And so we're in John 15. And it's the Passover, and it's the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar. And we're in the upper room with Jesus and with his friends, the disciples. And Jesus is giving them this long final speech. We call it the upper room discourse, John 14 to 16 or John 13 to 16. He's giving them this long final speech because he knows that he is getting ready to go to the cross and be arrested. And he knows that he is the true Passover lamb that sets God's people free by his blood. And he knows that in him there is a new and better exodus. But his friends don't quite know that yet. They don't quite get it. But they can tell that something big is getting ready to go down. So they're kind of like on eggshells, but they're paying attention. That's what they're feeling. And in this final speech, because of all these things, Jesus is trying to just lay it on the line and be really as clear as he can. And he's teaching them what life with him is going to be like when he leaves. And he's spelling out exactly what it means to pursue him 
fully and follow him closely. Simultaneously, he's getting ready to leave them and go to the cross, and he's getting ready to come through them by giving them his spirit. And his disciples, his friends, they just don't have categories or they don't have language for that yet. And so what does Jesus do for them? He slides into a metaphor because he knows it's hard for them and us to understand all this. Because he knows that, he's painting a picture for us of what life with him and for him is supposed to be like. And that is what we get to think about today in John chapter 15. So make sure you are there in your Bibles, and we'll get there in a few minutes. Now, before we wade into some of the details of this, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the picture Jesus paints for his friends and for us hangs on one single word, and that word is abide. So let's go ahead and like get the brain juices flowing, the synapses firing, and think about some things that we abide in. One of the main ways that we use this word is to, to act in accordance with. So let's just say you go off to college for the first time, and you're there, and you're meeting, and these, these RAs who think they know what they're doing with their lives, and these JV you know, staff at this college, and they get up, and they read you all the rules and regulations. Hey, here's what you can and can't do for dorm life. Here's what you can and can't do for campus life. And when they're done with the whole thing, they say, hey, if you refuse to abide by these rules, there will be consequences. That is, you have to comply and agree, and then you have to act like it. So that's one way that we use the word abide. Another way that we use the word abide is we talk about it as a dwelling, like a place that you live or stay, like, like your home. You abide in your home. And from here, we can, we can abstract up and we can talk about how we metaphorically live in certain things. So just a few examples. Some people abide in Money, they're, they're obsessed with money. This is the old, you don't have money, but money has you thing. Or romantically, you can abide in the love and the affection of your significant other. Some people abide, well, people abide in lots of things. Some people abide in, in ESPN or in books or in art or in Instagram, or they abide in their job or they abide in some hobby. These days, uh, a whole lot of people are abiding in politics And the truth is that what you abide in and how you do it will be a commentary on your soul's health. What you abide in and how you do it will be a pretty clear explanation on your emotional and your spiritual well-being. Here's what I mean. My uh, awesome and trusty assistant, Katie Malone, helped me dig up some blogs this past week, and the American... Psychology Association and Psychology Today and numerous other uh, national organizations that study mental wellness, they have noticed a trend. And this trend has spiked drastically in the 21st century with the rise of the digital age, the digital revolution. And they have noticed that um, every November during election years, there are exponential, like double, sometimes triple surges of anxiety and depression, use of medication, phone calls to mental health hotlines, and even suicide attempts. Why? Because people have put in so much time and energy and intensity and thought and passion and even anger and enthusiasm, and then the object of their zeal is taken away and it's pulled out from under them when all the votes are cast. And this is an actual thing. It is post-election anxiety and depression disorder, right? And it is no respecter of parties or persons. This is a real thing. But here's another way to put it when we're using our terminology today. There are people all around us, perhaps even in our midst, abiding in politics, 
and politics at such an unhealthy level that their soul is eroding right before, right before them. And what I'm saying is this is what we're talking about when we say what you abide in will be a commentary on your emotional and your spiritual well-being. And when we start to think about abiding spiritually, we do have to pay close attention to what Jesus is getting ready to say. We have to feel how strange it is for Jesus to choose the metaphor that he is using at this time, that that night, that Passover night. He's specifically picking this picture for this night and for this speech. And and I kind of want to ask Jesus why, like, hey, Jesus, you know there are lots of metaphors for life with God. There's kingdom. You, You never shut up about kingdom. You like to talk about kingdom all the time where God rules and he wants to share his reign with us. There's adoption where God is a loving father and he brings us into his family. There's a picture of light where God brings us out of darkness. There's the freedom picture where God brings us out of slavery to sin. There's, there's the, uh, the courtroom metaphor where we're declared not guilty and we're justified. Paul talks about walking as a metaphor for intimacy with God. Then you have the, <clears throat> the classic run the race with perseverance metaphor that we see throughout the New Testament. And with all of these and more available to him, here's Jesus' choice for the night that he's arrested. Here's his secret that's supposed to unlock life with God. Are you ready? Here's Jesus' big secret. you got to strap in. This is massive. Here it is. You ready? Get ready. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. Here it is. Stay. Like, abide. That's it. Stay. That, that's what you tell your dog when you don't want it to go anywhere. <clears throat> and that's like... Jesus' big climactic point, the night he's arrested. That, that re- Jesus, is that really it? Is that it? And it is. And it is kind of funny and strange, but it also requires something out of us. We need, to, <clears throat> we need to scratch our heads a little bit and wrestle this thing to the ground. <clears throat> Not only because we occasionally abide in and stay in things that are sometimes unhealthy for us, but chiefly because this is Jesus' final image and invitation before he goes to the cross. And so here's our task this morning. Three questions, three questions. According to Jesus, what is abiding? How do you abide and why do you abide? That's our task. That's what we're thinking about this morning. Three questions. What is abiding? How do we do it? And why do we do it? And Jesus himself will answer these questions for us in John chapter 5, or excuse me, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. That's our passage. John 15, 1 through 17. After I read, I'll say the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line, which is, thanks be to God. Uh, And I do hope you know that we do this uh, sometimes because it's a beautiful thing to hear God's word read as God's people, as God's family, and then collectively voice our gratitude for his speaking to us. So make it a good one and make it count. Um, What, how, and why about abide? John 15, 1 through 17. (coughs) Here we go. Jesus says... (coughs) I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit from a, for apart from me. You can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. 
if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. Verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. All right, let's not waste any time. What is Abiding, thanks for asking, very simply, abiding is having the same relationship with Jesus as a branch has with a vine. Look at verse 4, really, really clear, thanks for being clear, Jesus, abide in me, verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is one of my favorite Jesuses, this is green thumb Jesus, this is divine horticulture Jesus, and this language of abide is about closeness and intimacy between the person doing the abiding and the thing being abided in. But there is a slight mistake that a lot of people make about this passage. A lot of people go, oh yeah, Jesus, he chose uh, the vineyard metaphor so that they could understand because they lived in an agrarian and an agricultural society. Well, not really. Here's why Jesus chose vineyard. Uh, And I think this is really cool. He chose vineyard because he's a Jew. And in his Bible, the Hebrew Bible, guess what vineyard means? Vineyard, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was the image of God taking his people out of slavery in Egypt and planting them as a vine. So if you're a Jew in the first century, that's what you think about. You think about the Exodus story. Here, I'll prove it to you. Psalm chapter 80. Right on the screen for you, Psalm chapter 80. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the peoples and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. So turn again, O God of hosts, and look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand has planted. And it doesn't stop there if you keep reading the Psalms. And then you get to the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah says, The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, in which God looked for fruit, but all he found was bloodshed. Hosea chapter 10, Hosea the prophet, he says, Israel is a luxuriant vine, but now thorns and thistles have now grown all around it. So all the prophets in the Psalms are saying the same thing. And here's the deal. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 15. Jesus and his disciples, I know this is foreign to us, but Jesus and his disciples basically have the whole Hebrew Bible memorized. They know the whole thing, and he knows exactly that they are picking up what he's laying down. He knows. They all know the Psalms and the prophets continually 
portray Israel as a vine, and not just a vine, a terrible vine. They were fruitless. They were not fertile. They didn't grow and produce fruit like they were supposed to. Or to push the metaphor, I love Psalm 80, the wild boar came and ravaged it, right? That's the picture that Jesus is tapping into. So, this reframes Jesus' entire discussion. Why, why does it do that? Because Jesus is putting his own spin on the vineyard story, and he's positioning himself. Watch this. Jesus is positioning himself as Israel in a person. Look at verse 1. Look, I am the true vine. Israel is the shadow of which I am the substance. God's purposes for all of the world were supposed to be on display in Israel, and they failed and didn't produce fruit. And now I am the place where God's purposes are going to come to fruition, pun intended. Israel was supposed to live rightly unto God and others, and they failed. And now Jesus is representative Israel in a person being faithful where they were faithless. And because God planting his people in the Old Testament was after the great deliverance, the Exodus story. In all of this, Jesus is just retelling that story. He's saying, hey, you thought slavery, uh, political slavery under oppressive political leaders was bad. You thought that was bad. That's nothing compared to the slavery of sin and death. And I'm here to set you free from that. That's why he's telling this vine story at Passover night. That's when they recounted the Exodus story. And so, the vine image is not Jesus first and foremost trying to be relevant. Rather, he's specifically rehearsing the Exodus story with himself at the center, and his friends would be picking up on it immediately. So, how does this help us answer what is abiding? Thank you so much for asking. Here's how. Abiding is living in such freedom for likeness to and intimacy with Jesus that God's own life is moving in us and through us. That is what God wanted for ancient Israel, for his own life to move in them and through them. And they failed, but now we have Jesus. And if we understand the background of what Jesus is saying behind John 15, we'll get that this is a healthy definition of abiding. It's living in such freedom for Likeness to and intimacy with Jesus that God's own life is pulsing and moving in us and through us. And it's not an accident that right before this passage and right after this passage, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. We talked about this last week. And that's part of God's own life moving through us, that, like God uh, has intended. But today, here in this passage, we're supposed to be branches connected to the vine that is Jesus. Verse 5, whoever abides in me bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Verse 8, the Father is glorified when you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is God's very glory and life and essence flowing through us if we are intimately abiding like we should. And here's the thing. Because this is what we were made for, this is why we were created, all right? This is the point. Because this is what we were made for, it does the opposite of make your soul erode and wither away, right? This makes, sometimes you abide in stuff and it is not good for your soul. But if you abide in Jesus, it makes your soul sturdy and strong and healthy because you're connected to a life source that's true and sure. Jesus, the vine. That's what we're talking about. So what is abiding? It is a very special invitation to freedom and closeness with Jesus that yields God's own love and life in ours, which is super humbling and super awesome. So that's what is abiding. Next question. How do we abide? How do we do it? 
I wish this was like a classroom setting and I could be like, all right, everybody take five minutes and reread the passaging again and you tell me what you think the main ways of how to abide are because there seemingly are, are lots of them. We could talk about love. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, abide in my love. Verse 12, uh, love one another, same as verse 17. We could talk about obedience. <clears throat> verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's an obedience thing. That's a good way to abide, right? We could talk about prayer. Verse 7, if you ask anything in my name, whatever you, whatever you ask, whatever you wish, it will be done for you, which sounds really powerful and beautiful, and it is, and it's better than what we think. Charlie did a great job talking about that a couple weeks ago from John 14. Um, we could also talk about the humility and the joy that comes from Jesus choosing you. He talks about joy in verse 11, and in verse 16 he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, that you would go and bear fruit. And yes, Jesus in this context is talking about his disciples in the upper room and how he chose them. And it's not a, a direct commentary on predestination before the foundation of the world and <clears throat> that whole conversation. And if you like to pretend that you understand all that, just chill out for a second and just take a deep breath and be happy that Jesus chose you to be his disciple. Like, take a deep breath, breathe, and realize that you don't have to know everything and think about the beauty and the humility and the joy that Jesus chose to love you and delight in you and invite you into deeper fellowship with himself. <clears throat> and here's the deal. Every one of these is great, man. Absolutely. You need to love. You need to obey. You need to pray. You need to be humble. All these things. Yes, yes, yes. But I don't think any of these are the primary focus of how of abiding. I don't, I don't think they are, and here's why. Because these are actual things, <clears throat> and the main how of abiding is still tucked in the vine metaphor, and so we need to understand that first. Look at verse 2. Look, verse 2. Look, look, look. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, <clears throat> he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So how do we abide? Big answer is something about this word, this idea, prune. Now, when you prune branches, you get them ready for harvest. Pruning the branches <clears throat> is good for the branches, and it's not bad for the branches, but I have a feeling that if you ask a branch while it's being pruned, man, hey, how you doing? They might tell you otherwise. Um, this is a long paragraph, but N.T. Wright's commentary here on, on all this is perfect. He writes, One of the areas in which I possess near total incompetence is gardening. However, I can prune roses. Someone taught me when I was young and I have never forgotten. In fact, I not only know how to do it, I even know why. A rose bush left to itself will get straggly and tangled and grow in on itself. It will produce quite a lot of not-so-good roses rather than a smaller number of splendid and stronger ones. It will, quite literally, get in its own light. That's, that's me. It needs help to grow in the right direction and to the right end, so you prune it to stop it wasting its energy and being unproductive. Cough, cough, wink, wink. Right? You cut out the parts of the plant that are growing inwards and getting tangled up. And you encourage the shoots that are growing outward and toward the light. Much like in a vineyard, you, pr you prune the rose to help it be what it was always meant to be. And I love that picture. I think that's so, so good. But I think what we need to realize here is that the pruning being talked about is not a, a trivial trimming. That's not what it is. It is a substantial cutting back. And this kind of pruning, it requires submission to the pruner's knife. Or to double down on metaphor, our Father 
the vine dresser is like a skilled surgeon with a scalpel. Yes, his cuts may be painful, but they yield and sustain and empower future life. Here's the deal. If you don't know what you're looking for, like you're, you're not ready for it, if you don't know what you're looking for, and you walk into a vineyard during pruning time, you might be a little shocked and like worried and angry. <laughs> like, dude, why is there so much on the Don't cut that. Don't, there's so much green on the ground. There are grapes on the ground over here. This has to be wasteful. This has to be wasteful. And you might think that the, the, the gardener is either blindfolded, drunk, or both. This is ridiculous. What are you doing? You, you have to be wasting so much. But if you do know what you're looking for, and you walk into a vineyard during pruning time, you know that there is not a random snip or clip or lop or trim or slice or chop or sever at all in the entire process. If you do know what you're looking for, you see a harvest that is yet to come. You see hope. You see jelly and jam and welches and wine and pies and pastries. You see all of it. You see abundance and growth in its most seed form. A father understands, but a child may not. The vine dresser gets it, but it, it might be tough for the branches. And because Jesus is the vine, nothing that is taken away is truly a loss. And this is hard to believe, but we have to believe it. He is the faithful and fruitful vine that Israel wasn't and that we can't be on our own. And so with him, we have to get this, brothers and sisters, with him, Nothing that fades or falls is a penalty or a punishment. It is a pruning. It is a preparation for growth and fruit and maturity. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we have to have to have to know this. What we might consider loss is actually God's loving and patient pruning. That is the how of abiding. So let's... let's uh, Push pause on the metaphor and just go write it directly. What do you need to cut back in your life? Are you following Jesus? You are? Good. What needs to be cut back? Don't debate with the Holy Spirit. Don't self-justify, I really like this thing. Stop it, stop it. What needs to cut back? Where do you need discipline? What needs to be taken away? Where do you need balance? Where do you just need to stop a thing? I didn't say it was bad. I asked if it's the thing that most honors the vine and the vine dresser. What do you need to let go of? How do you need to more, sub, uh, more submissively submit or, or, or give yourself to the Heavenly Father's instruction and His pruning in your life? If you're a branch connected to Jesus, there's a likelihood that something needs to be taken away. And what is it? That's what we're talking about here. Now, um, <clears throat> how do we abide? Well, we're, <clears throat> we're talking about pruning. But that's what God does. He does that. He's the Father. He's the vine dresser. Verse 1, my Father is the vine dresser. So what, how do we abide? We, we're pruned, but what do we do? That's what the Father does. What do we do? Well, this is where we back way up and we zoom way out to look at John's major purpose again. And his major trust is, uh, purpose is that we would believe. <clears throat> and the fitting word here is that we would trust. So this is how, this is how we abide. Here it is. Here's how we put it. <clears throat> we rightly abide in Jesus. When we trust God's wise and loving pruning in our lives. The pruning is God's part and the trust is our part. We rightly abide in Jesus when we trust God's wise and loving pruning <laughs> in our lives. Like it, it might not 
be easy or comfortable or cozy, but the harvest will be worth it. That is the journey of, of faith and of trust. We should trust his timing. We should trust his sovereignty, trust his purposes, trust his faithfulness. i just go, go ahead and let you in on this. He's been a gardener for a long time, a long time. And we need to trust that what we might call squandered, he might call scheduled. What we might call barren, he might call blessed. We need to trust that what we might call waste, he calls grace. And that these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Trust the Father as the vine dresser. Literally, he has been a gardener from the very beginning. Page one, he knows what he's doing even if we can't see the precision of it. And we need to trust that when our lives are a mess and when our lives look like this and we get so tangled up in ourselves and what we want and what we think we can do on our own, even though we know he said, apart from me, you can do nothing, when life is gnarly and knotted up, we need to trust the pruner's knife. And getting cut back so far puts us in a place of total dependence where we have nothing to offer but need itself. And this is where we have no choice but to pray and obey and be humble and love. <clears throat> but because he's faithful, it always yields a bountiful harvest in his time. we got to believe it. He wastes nothing in your life. And that's tough to grasp, but it's true. It's true, and that's what we're talking about. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And if Jesus is the true vine, then he will always be gathering up produce and harvest and fruit. And if we trust and if we stay connected to him, we get to share in the abundance. Yeah, the, the pruning might never be comfy and cozy, but its results... Get it, its results are not contingency or possibility. They are surety if we are intimately joined to Jesus. You did not choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you that you would bear fruit. Fruit that would remain, fruit that would stay, fruit that would abide. And we do this in faith, submitting to the Father's wise and loving pruning. What is it? <clears throat> How do we do it? Last, why do we abide? Why do we abide? <clears throat> there is a, a tiny little answer that doesn't take up a lot of space in this passage, <clears throat> and it's a negative answer. And there's a big answer that is way more uh, clear in this text. The small negative answer is verse 6. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, <clears throat> he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. Some commentators are quick to point out that this image of fire is about hell. It's about being separated from the eternal life source that is Jesus the vine. Other commentators will say, well, fire often represents uh, judgment and purification in Scripture, and it does, like gold passing through the fire to judge it and get out the impurities. And so people want to know, is this image about exile from God's eternal life, or is it a picture of purification? Well, Jesus talks about both elsewhere, and he never explains this image, so I wonder if he's maybe suggesting both here. I've been helped by the way Tim Keller talks about this. Keller asks, what is a dead branch? It's a branch that has a formal and not a vital relationship with the vine. 
A dead branch does have some kind of relationship to the vine. It's stuck in all the vine growth, the, the tangled stuff and the fertile stuff. Perhaps it goes to church and says some of the right things and makes sure it doesn't do certain other things. A dead branch, <clears throat> though, it does have some kind of connection to God. But the connection, is it engineered or is it organic? Is it fake and external or is it real and internal? Keller writes, that's the question the gardener has for you today. Is your connection to the vine a formal one or a vital one? And to relate this to the image of fire, <clears throat> Jesus' point is simply, no one should want the fire and humanity and God's people are not destined for the fire, whether that's of separation or painful purification. But Jesus' bigger and broader point is, if we are submitted to our Father, the vine dresser, the gardener, trusting Him, obeying Him, loving Him, loving others, if we're intimately joined to Jesus, then we have nothing to fear. The fire is not for us, but the fruit is for us. That's the big why right there. The fruit is for us. That's Jesus' biggest point. The word abide in here is used 11 times in our passage. The word fruit is used eight. Jesus says, by this abiding, my Father is glorified that you would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Fruit in the Bible goes all the way back to page one. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fruit is... Life the way God intended. It's his own life, experienced, enjoyed, and shared. <clears throat> Fruit is, is beauty and truth and forgiveness and grace and love and hope that can't be accounted for on your own. People are not going to look at real fruit in your life and be like, oh, good job, you did that. Way to go, you, you, you. No, only Jesus gets credit for the fruit and not us. <clears throat> and when we bear that fruit, it, it can be for our highest joy. Look at verse 11. I'm telling you all this so that my joy, Jesus says, my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. That you might be a branch happily weighed down with the fruit of the Spirit. That your life would have a joyfully heavy sense of God's power and love upon it. <clears throat> so, why should we abide? Here's, here it is really simply. We should abide in Jesus in order to bear fruit for our joy and for God's glory. We should abide in Jesus in order to bear fruit for our joy and for his glory. If you don't, listen, if you don't want God to be glorified in your life, then don't try being happy, being happy and joyful in Jesus. And if you don't want to be happy, don't abide in him. But if you want to trust that Jesus is actually telling the truth here, his invitation to trust him and be intimately connected to him is one that, that puts God on display as worthy and true and good and faithful all the time. And that same invitation has overflowing joy and happiness in him as a part of its objective. <clears throat> and here's the thing, you ready? That joy can be more filling than the pruning is fragile. You feel that? That joy can be more filling than the pruning is fragile. <clears throat> but if you reject the pruning... The joy won't be as full. They're a package deal. Again, we should abide in Jesus in order to bear fruit for Jesus, for God's glory, and for our joy. <clears throat> so this is the why. But that can feel abstract, and I just want you to know, <clears throat> there is a practical part of this why. Like, Jesus is, is not trying to stay in the abstract. He's trying to get up in our business, right? <clears throat> and he's saying directly to you and directly to me, <clears throat> hey, Abiding in me means that you can't also abide in money. If you're abiding in me, Jesus says, you can't also abide in politics or ESPN or social media. 
Jesus is telling us that abiding in him means we can't also at the same time abide in our marriage or our kids or any other good gift that he has given us. Jesus said, abide in me and not abide in what I can do for you. And when we abide and we trust and we are pruned and then we bear fruit in Jesus' name, we're supposed to take all of that fruit of God's own life moving in us and through us and make it visible in all the spaces and places of life like hobbies and sports and family and politics and art and music and jobs and relationships. So just think, just think. In all of those spaces, are you trying to bear your own fruit and you, you, you be seen? Do you want your life to be seen, felt, sensed, and experienced as the most important? Or, in all of the different contexts of your life, do you want Jesus' own life to be known and seen and experienced? That's what abiding and fruit-bearing are all about. I tell you right now, one of the reasons I'm so glad I didn't get to preach my sermon up here 14 years ago is because back then I thought for sure preaching was about me and how much stuff I knew, and that's all kinds of backwards. And guess what? I needed a whole lot of pruning, a whole lot, of, and I still do. So instead, in our lives, Jesus should be seen as the most important, as the source of life, as the vine that will never wither. That's, that's the point. And here's why Jesus is the most important. In the Old Testament, Israel sinned. The Psalms and the prophets repeat it. They tell us, Israel failed to bear fruit for God and others, and it led to divine judgment. And the divine judgment in the Old Testament was exile. But here, in John's Gospel, Jesus is Israel in a person rightly growing branches and bearing fruit for God and for others. He is the fruit-bearing, freedom-giving, Passover lamb vine. That's who he is. And we supremely know this because he went to the cross and got wrapped up and entangled in all of the thorns and thistles and overgrowth of sin and death and divine judgment that we deserve. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Though he was rich, he became poor so that we who are poor might be rich in him. Jesus took to himself the death that our sins deserve. And on our own, apart from God's mercy, we are fruitless, dried up, eroded, withered branches that ought to be thrown out. But here's what you have to see. Jesus himself was thrown out for us. On the cross, he experienced separation that we might experience connection and belonging to God. He was pruned all the way back even unto death that we might have life through him. And this is really good news. Really good news. This is the gospel. Verse 13. Greater love has no man than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. And when we behold the glorious good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for sinners to make kingdom come, when we behold that, what does Jesus want us to do with it? What should you do with the gospel of Jesus? How do you respond? What's the move? You ready? This is the big one. Buckle up. Here it is. What do you do with it? You stay. You abide. You remain in his love. And that's the secret. Fellowship Greenville, let's do it. Let's abide in Jesus and he will abide in us because apart from him, we can do nothing. And the Father is glorified in this when we submit to his wise and loving pruning 
and then we bear much fruit and we prove to be Jesus' disciples. So I say we get on it. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we need to abide more intimately in Jesus the vine. We need to sense more of the divine life in our midst, in our days, in our hearts, in our souls, in our spirits. With all the insanity in the world right now, Holy Spirit, please help us to abide in Jesus more closely so that others will see that we have a source of life that's not going to wither or fade. And Jesus, we praise you that you've conquered death and that the life you give, that the life you offer, that the life you extend to us is, doesn't have a shelf life, that doesn't have an expiration date. We thank you that that's good news, that you have conquered death, you've overcome the grave. And so we praise you and we thank you and we love you. Jesus, you're the best. Amen.